And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13 on Inferno. Uh, and we're, as you <laughs> probably noticed, not going quite as quickly as I'd originally planned, but that's okay. We've settled into a pretty good pace. We're doing almost two cantos per class. Not quite two cantos per class, maybe one and a half, but that's okay. That's fine. My new motto is life is too short to go quickly. So there we go. Um, anyway, uh, looking forward to getting back into things. But before we start, I have two announcements. Um, and uh, both of them are uh, uh, related to upcoming events. Uh, one very imminent, one significantly less imminent. The very imminent one, of course, is Texmoot. Texmoot is happening this very weekend, as is on Saturday. Uh, we are getting together for Texmoot. Looking forward to joining a lot of people there. We're, 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 we have uh, really wonderful enrollment, so I hope you can join us and a big crowd of wonderful people uh, who are going to be all pretending we are cool enough to be in Texas this weekend. Um, but in any case, uh, we're going to be having a good time together. So uh, texmoot.org, signumuniversity.org slash events, uh, and go to Texmoot there. And you can still register. Uh, so um, uh, going to be awesome. Looking forward to seeing a bunch of you there. Uh, uh, looking forward to this coming Saturday uh, for Texmoot stuff. So that's the first announcement. Final reminder, there's still time. Um, and uh, the second announcement is about an event which is somewhat less imminent, uh, but which is nevertheless very exciting, and that is Mythmoot 8. Mythmoot is coming again. I am always so excited for Mythmoot. It's our biggest event of the year, uh, and those of you... Um, uh, those of you who have um, been... Uh, to Mythmoot's before, know that this is a this is a really special time. So uh, Mythmoot Eight, Home is Behind, The World Ahead uh, is uh, going to be happening. So The World Ahead is our theme uh, for Mythmoot Eight. Um, so I will. Uh, uh, how about I actually like share my screen? That might be helpful as usual. No, not that. This. Thank you. Very good. Okay. There we go. Um, so uh, you can join us. The dates are June twenty fourth through twenty seventh. Um, and let me just specify at first, we do not yet know for sure whether we're going to have an in-person gathering. We're waiting on this. This is the plan. Um, we are going to begin soon. Not quite yet. Registration isn't quite open yet. Um, we hope to have that link up uh, within a week or so. I'll let you guys know next week if the registration link is up. But here's how it's going to work. Um, first, we're going to open registration for online attendance. We'll have, just as we did last year, the two different levels uh, of online attendance. We'll have Mootcast and Moot Hub. Mootcast is for folks who are basically going to be able to do it asynchronously. If you can't you know, attend with us live during the day and participate in the live sessions, um, then get Mootcast and you will get access to you know, archived recordings of everything that we do. It is also possible to attend some sessions live, um, so it's not that there's no live component. But you won't get like all the extra, like the hangout times and, and stuff where we can all like hang out and talk in real time. Um, Mootcast is just basically being able to get either live, pre live presentation or asynchronous recordings of the actual sessions, like the presentations and stuff. Um, so that's the best way to do it if you can't like bank time during that weekend to be with us online. Um, but Moot Hub is if you can. If you can join us, uh, uh, you know, and uh, synchronously. 
uh, even if remotely, uh, Moot Hub enables you to uh, to be with us and be you know really part of the experience. Um, throughout the presentations, the, the sort of fun stuff in between and around, uh, and all that, um, and all that kind of thing. So, um, that's what we are, um, uh, that's what we're, 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 so we did that last year at those two levels, Mootcast and Moot Hub worked really, really well. So here's what we're going to, so, so as I said, this is the plan. We're going to, we're just opening it for the online registration. And it may well be that that's all that we can do. We're, you know, we are, we are, we are braced for that. We are prepared for that. But we don't want to totally close the door yet, just in case there might be some version of an of a, an in-person gathering that we can do. Nobody really knows what the end of June is going to look like yet. Um, so we're 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 waiting until we're, we're going to make an announce. We're going to make a determination at the end of March. See how things. We're going to give it a couple more. You know, you know, another month or so. See how things begin to look with different factors. If it looks like it's possible, if it does become possible for us to do anything in person, then we will have, uh, for everyone who has uh, signed up for Moot Hub, will you know, have the opportunity to upgrade if they want to. We're still going to do the online stuff no matter what. Um, so Moot Hub and Mootcast um, will still be available. Um, we will give the opportunity for, if we do something in person, we'll give people the opportunity to, to you know, sort of bump up the registration to the in-person one. And then, of course, you'd get Moot Hub like with that in, in any case. Um, so that's, uh, uh, that's the plan. We're, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're defaulting, assuming that, uh, you know, it's likely to be online only. And we're definitely starting that way. But as I say, we're not closing the door, but we don't want to put off registration either. So, uh, that's, uh, that is the plan. And yeah, as uh, Stephen says, if you want to spend most of the night chatting with folks, Moot Hub is the way to go. Exactly. Yeah. No, really fun gatherings. It's not quite the same as sitting around the fire pits uh, there in Virginia, but still, it's it, it was uh, pretty cool. Moot Hub was an awesome experience last year. So those are the registration options. As I said, the registration will be opening soon. But in the meantime, what you can, first of all, to save the date, June 24th to 27th. Uh, secondly, you can see uh, the... You can see the theme. You can see our special guests, um, uh, which are very cool this year. Um, uh, so you can see more information about our three special guests, and also you can be if you want to make uh, you want to get your 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 merch in advance. This is a thing we did last year, but it was it was uh, it worked really well. But it was kind of. Um, it got implemented in the end, kind of close to the event. Uh, if you want to definitely be able to get like your Mythmoot t-shirt to be able to wear during Mythmoot and stuff, then, uh, you know, you can order things in advance. So we've got the, uh, the link to all of our, uh, uh, Mythmoot eight designs there. So you can get, you can get a, you know, a, a, a mug to sip tea from, uh, during, uh, Mythmoot. You can get a travel mug like the one I still have from last year's Mythmoot. Um, so these, this is the fun stuff that is happening at Mythmoot this year. So there's a little preview. Again, registration not open yet, uh, but uh, wanted to let people know that this is brewing and that uh, the registration will be coming soon. Uh, so that is the plan. Um, Oh boy, Jocelyn! I hope we can do uh, another SoCal moot soon. Uh, that is definitely uh, something that I am looking forward to. Um, I am uh, looking forward to restarting our regional moot program as soon as it is uh, in any way feasible to do that. I don't know exactly when that's going to be. Uh, my personal hope uh, is for the fall, but we'll see. We'll see. You know how things go. Um, 
But um, but in any case, I am really hoping we can do that sooner rather than later. So those are the exciting event related announcements. And now back to hell, because tonight, uh, tonight we get to one of my favorite parts. Um, I love the descent into the eighth circle. Um, you'll remember that when um, remember that scene outside the gates of Dees when um, Dante and Virgil were waiting, you know, kind of standing around, tapping their feet, waiting for the angel to come and let them in the gates. Right. Um, and they were having that uh, strange conversation and the Furies were up there threatening them with Medusa, which may or may not be legit. Um, and uh, Virgil does that thing where he puts his like Dante covers his eyes with his hands and then Virgil covers his hands with, with Dante's hands with his own hands. And then uh, Dante does that address to the reader, right, where he's like, you who read this, like, you know, see what I have said under, you know, under the, you know, basically kind of directly pointing us towards allegorical interpretation, right? Uh, you know, uh, pointing out that, like, that thing I just said or that thing I'm just going to say, depending on how you read that, um, you read that passage. Um, uh, this is, um, uh, uh, you know, the, anyway, like it's the way that he directly points to, uh, you know, kind of breaks the frame almost <clears throat> in order to point to the fact that he's writing allegory and what he's doing. Um, he does that again, of course, uh, when we get to Jerion, but the way he does it, or rather kind of like the stuff surrounding how he does it, uh, is even more interesting. So yeah, Devorah, I hear you. Devorah says, about Jerrion, I have questions. Oh man, so do I. You and me both, Devorah. You and me both. Um, okay. So, let's jump straight into it here uh, as we descend into fraud. We're done with Malice. Almost done with Malice. We'll get a little brief sign light uh, into Malice, uh, and then off we go into fraud. So um, here's, here's his caution. Uh, what follows may contain allegory message. So remember, they've, got, they've, they've been through the burning desert, right? They get to the end of the burning desert, and there's a waterfall. Remember, they're following the course of the bloody burning river, right? Which is shielding them, in fact. Uh, you know, the mist above it is shielding them from the raining fire. And they are, they come to the cliff and there's a waterfall. Uh, there's the, you know, the, the, the roar of the waterfall as the bloody river tumbles down a huge cliff, which they have no means to descend. So Virgil is going to whistle up their ride. Around my waist, I had a cord as a girdle. And with it, once I thought I should be able to catch the leopard with the painted hide. Remember back in like Canto 2 or 3, uh, when those allegorical beasts were hen you know, sort of uh, hemming him in on, on all sides. And uh, he was going to take his belt off and try to catch uh, the leopard uh, to defend himself. And then, of course, Virgil came and rescued him. And after I had loosened it completely, just as my guide commanded me to do, I handed it to him, knotted and coiled. At this, he wheeled around upon his right and cast it, at some distance from the edge, straight down into the depth of the ravine. And surely something strange must here reply, I said within myself, to this strange sign, the sign my master follows with his eye. Ah, how much care men ought to exercise with, the, with those whose penetrating intellect can see our thoughts, not just our outer act. 
Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, how much care men ought to exercise with those whose penetrating intellect can see our thoughts, not just our outer act? So the the thing that he points to explicitly here is that is the sort of the link between the thought and the outer act. So there 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 is an exterior action, but there is a thought behind it. So we're being prompted to invoke, not invoke, utilize, I suppose, our intellect, howsoever penetrating it may end up being, uh, in order to see the thought behind the outer action. Right. So one really simplistic way of paraphrasing what Dante says there at the end is I'm trying to figure out what he's doing, right? Or you could paraphrase it even more simply with what is Virgil thinking, right? Why is he doing this? What has he done? And why is he doing this? Um, He says he can get them a ride down. All you have to do is give him his, give him your belt, right? And then he turns and chucks it over the cliff into the mist, right? And it was, Watch, watch as it go, right? Um, a, the sign my master followed with his eye. How much care men ought to exercise with those whose penetrating intellect can see our thoughts, not just our outer acts. So on the one hand, it's a prompting, I would say, to utilize our penetrating intellect to perceive the thoughts and not just the outer act or to reflect that Dante himself was attempting to do so, right? But, um, but explicitly what he's doing is cautioning against this, Right? You got to be careful around those penetrating intellectuals, right? Who can see our thoughts and not just our outer act. So like, be careful around people who can figure out what you're thinking, you know, by looking at what you're doing. Um, uh, yeah. So Stephen, an excellent question. Stephen asks, did Virgil hang the cord um, from the cliff or did he just, chuck the whole thing off and send it plummeting down. Stephen, the latter, as far as I can tell, right? Um, I mean, it, the, the whole, like, here, give me your belt and we'll use your belt to get down does sound like it's sort of setting up a, you know, Frodo and Sam and the Emin Wheel kind of situation, right? Um, you know, where they're going to, like, rappel down the cliff on, uh, you know, his belt, um, which may or may not be long enough to get all the way down, but that does that's not what he does, right? He's he's whistling up a ride. Jerrion uh, is going to come up and take them down. Um, so first he throws the belt, and then he watches where the belt goes, and then Jerrion emerges out of the mist and lands, and they're going to ride on him. Um, so there doesn't seem to be any, well practical uh, application of the belt here. Like it's, it doesn't, that's another thing which would seem to indicate that what's happening here is something symbolic rather than something literal, right? I mean, again, it's that that nobody seems to be using a rope or belt, in fact, to do any climbing of any kind. Um, Nor does Jerion himself seem to have any, um, use for the rope, right? It's not like, you know, and then Jerrion comes up with like Dante's belt in his mouth, right? Like panting and asking them to throw the belt again, right? It's, there doesn't seem to be any kind of cause and effect, like external 
cause and effect link between Dante's belt and Jerrion's appearance that I can see anyway uh, in the text. Um, it's um, there does, however, seem to be some kind of cause and effect. Virgil, I mean, I don't think he's just doing this to make a point of some kind, sartorial or otherwise, right? You know, I don't think this is a this is fashion advice for Dante. Oh, much better without the belt, right? Let's just let's just ditch that, and now you're fine. So I don't think it's a fashion. I don't think it's fashion advice. Um, I don't think that there is. Um, I have no reason to believe it to be a magical belt, right? Which the casting of which down cliffs in hell conjures, you know, uh, monstrous taxi services. I, I, there's no reason to believe anything like that explicitly. And yet we do seem to be um, invited to understand that there is a cause and effect relationship here. When, you know, Virgil says, seems to suggest that this is the mechanism by which uh, they're going to conjure up. They're going to conjure up the ride in one sense. Now, uh, Sharon, that's a really interesting question. Of course, you know, we've been thinking about um, uh, biblical connections uh, and things, right? You know, that we always have to be carefully attuned when reading Dante to, uh, to references both to scripture and to Greco-Roman mythology uh, and classical uh, works in general. Um, and of course, thinking about allegorical belts, uh, Sharon is exactly right to say uh, that there is an allegorical belt which should probably um, come to mind, right? Which might possibly be relevant. And that is the belt in the whole armor of God that is described by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. The uh, armor of God with which one is to gird oneself in order to protect what to stand uh, against the evil one. Um, and the belt part of the explicitly allegorical armor uh, that Paul describes there, um, which of course, needless to say, in the Middle Ages, we love the armor of God passage. Um, or if anything, I think they were almost disappointed by it because Paul does the allegory explicitly instead of leaving it to them to do, which they quite prefer, I think. Um, but because uh, there it is, like an explicitly allegorical passage, which is the significance of which is all spelled out and everything. Right. So it's kind of like the, you know, the 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 beginner. It's like the the the, you know, um, instructional version. Right. You know, to, to to show you how it's done. And indeed, I would say one of those passages in the New Testament, which uh, sort of explicitly, uh, certainly in the mind of the uh, medieval commentators, justified their allegorical approach. Um, because you can see this is this, you know, that that kind of thing uh, uh, is obviously germane to the way that the uh, to the way that that uh, the scriptural writers were thinking. Um, exactly, Serena. It's like allegory for dummies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you can do that. Right. If you can, you know, study the, the whole armor of God passage in Ephesians six and then pretty soon you'll be ready to go on to the advanced course, uh, which, of course, everybody knows is the Song of Solomon. Everybody's favorite passage in the Middle Ages to allegorize. But um, OK. Um, so, um, now, so the allegorical belt is, which is the belt of truth. Um, on the one hand, I, it doesn't help me immediately, 
Right. Making that connection to the allegorical belt of truth doesn't uh, 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 doesn't help me immediately. Bruce, exactly. That's my first thought, too. Like you're supposed to chuck truth over the edge of the cliff. Uh, like, is it like are we jettisoning truth here? Um, that would seem not a good approach. Right. I, the, remember, the whole armor of God passage is about putting on the armor of God, not divesting oneself of the armor of God. That would seem counterindicated when you are descending into hell amongst all of the, you know, you're, you're like he's preparing to go and meet Satan himself. Right. So uh, I get presumably you would think you would want more of rather than less of the armor of God. Um, so it seems counterintuitive, but Bruce, here's the other thing I can't get away from. We're talking about fraud, right? Fraud is where we're... And so the idea of removing truth and separating ourselves from truth in some sense as we descend into fraud seems relevant, right? I mean, the, the question of truth certainly seems relevant when we're about to transit as a, as a transitional move to enter like this is the mechanism by which we're cause and effect, right? The effect is we get to descend and enter the circle of fraud. And if the cause has something to do with removing truth in any sense, right? Well, again, I don't know that I get that. I don't know. I don't know that I can explain it. I don't know that I see the full allegorical significance of it, but it, it seems not irrelevant anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, but I don't think that this is a mere jettisoning, right? I mean, I was talking about chucking it away or, you know, like him removing it as a, as a fashion accessory as a joke, but I don't think that certainly the discarding of the belt is uh, the thing that... I don't think that a discarding is the only way to understand Virgil's gesture here, right? Um, uh, there are lots of other ways in which that gesture of casting the, uh, um, the rope down into the ravine, you know, off the cliff, down into the circle of fraud, could be seen to function, right? Um, there could be a sense in which that belt is kind of going before them, like in which it's even in some kind of uh, uh, metaphorical sense, it, like creating a path for them, right? Where the belt first goes, we go after, which is literally what's going to happen, right, in a sense. Um, so in that way, I mean, so so again, that's, that, that's not just a let's ditch this thing, right? That could be, um, so in a sense it is, he's not actually tying one end to the top and throwing the other end down in order to create a pathway for them. But in a sense, perhaps he's doing that symbolically, maybe in some way. Um, there's also a sense in which, um, uh, there's also a sense in which, it, yeah, Jameson is saying, could it be a lure in some sense? Well, yeah, I mean, Jameson, I, you know, I said the cause and effect is like, you know, the effect is their descent, which is true, but that's indirectly, right? The direct effect um, that the action of casting the belt in causes is the emergence of Jerion, right? So it seems... Uh, it's so. I mean, and Jerion is the means by which they are going to be taken down. Um, so it does get them down there. But what it immediately does is summon Jerion, right? So, okay. Um, so maybe we think about it in that sense. Um, 
I also can't shake the general sense in which this also has the kind of air of almost something like a propitiatory sacrifice, right? Like we give this, you know, we we give this gift and, you know, like, like, like it's their fair, right? Um, uh, Jerry will come and get us, but first we got to you know, give him a belt, <laughs> right? Your belt is like the, like, must be sacrificed first before we can go down. Um, and I don't know if that makes any sense either. Um, but, um, uh, but again, that seems to be another potential way to understand um, the um, uh, to understand the gesture again that 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 throwing of the of the belt gesture, um, it's also of course this is Dante remember very possible that there is not one single answer to this that any you know several of these options could possibly uh, could possibly work. Um, um, yeah. So Sylvia, uh, again, if again, if we do associate the belt with truth, which again, as Sharon very aptly points out, we do have uh, a direct allegorical line to that. Um, I would go so far as to say, um, just as Sharon was suggesting, if there is an attribute that should will be like first associated with the belt, um, I, I think it has to be truth. And again. Considering that we're talking about fraud, that seems all the more likely, right? That would that would seem to be supported by context uh, in that sense. Um, again, it's not proof, um, and the exact way in which that is meant to operate is not obvious. But uh, but but that does seem so. So anyway, but Sylvia, getting back to your observation, if it is symbolic in that sense of like uh, you know no truth belt time for fraud, as Sylvia says, yeah, I, but. It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Again, if the belt of truth, remember context of the armor of God, right? This is the armor with which you defend yourself from the attacks of the devil. That is the context in Ephesians chapter 6. So if the belt of truth is the thing that's, you know, uh, you know, is an important element, right? An important element of that armor. Uh, divesting yourself of that is a questionable move. Uh, but it's not just that, Sylvia. It's also like, okay, if... If he is going to remove his truth in some sense, even if he has to do so in some kind of superficial way in order to enter or as he's entering the circle of fraud, it connects him with fraud itself. Right. It gives him personally a kind of fraud based, you know, uh, connection. Right. And that would be interesting and I would think important, right? I mean, uh, and we've seen this, of course, many times before now. Moments of connection between Dante and the sinners that are immediately surrounding him or sort of generally like the sin that is being punished in the relevant circle. Um, and Sylvia, I would add, I would add that um, the thing that to me supports this idea um is this isn't the only thing if we t even if 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 we take it in that way as almost a 
I don't want to go so far as to say an indictment of Dante himself, um, but but something kind of in that direction, if you see what I mean. If we do take it in that way, uh, see this as a um, a little bit of a link between uh, Dante and fraud. He's going to establish some bigger links between himself and fraud, um, and that those links will be established through Gerion, um, which uh, you know who is going to be summoned by the belt uh, when it gets thrown off the cliff. So. You know, in some way, Sylvia, it does seem to me that this act of throwing the belt off the cliff does seem to start this whole chain of events, which does, in my mind, keep coming back to connecting Dante himself with the concept of fraud, or at least um, inviting us to ask that question. You know, the, the question of, uh, of, of, you know, it seems to invite the question of Dante's relationship to fraud. Um, okay. Devorah is still stuck on the leopard. So I, I hear you. Um, I, his explanation of the significance of his belt. With it, once I thought I should be able to catch the leopard with the painted hide. Is, um, uh, to quote the Lord of the Rings again, a uh, an explanation that doesn't seem to explain. In that... I don't understand who the leopard was in the first place, right? That wasn't really clear to me at the time. So having failed the first test, I'm doomed to fail the second test too. Uh, so I don't really know. Um, uh, was it the leopard who was associated with... Was the, the leopard was the hungry one, wasn't it? Wasn't it the hungry one that was associated with pride, if I'm recalling? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and Stephen also, Stephen and Devora are both uh, uh, stuck on the leopard. Uh, I, 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 I hear that. I hear that. I mean, the fun thing, and this is this is what, one of the things that's so delightful about Dante's allegory. It's not only <clears throat> really rich, like each passage is really rich, um, but the entire text is really densely interconnected. Um, so it's sort of like those, um, you remember those SAT logic puzzles, you know, uh, like the, you know, where you're given like the names of seven students all sitting in a row and you have to figure out the order in which they're sitting, you know, by the clues that say like, you know, uh, Susie is, uh, you know, not next to Bob and is, uh, one seat away from the person with red hair. Right. Uh, and that, you know, and like no one single cue is a clue is enough to really help you figure out where Susie is sitting. But if you take that clue and you combine it with another clue, you know, together you can figure them out. There are things like that. So here's one, right. If the leopard was opaque to us the first time, well, now we have another data point about the leopard, right? So we can, uh, it's not like this reference in itself is enormously illuminating, right? Either about the belt or about the leopard, to be frank, right? But if we, you know, it prompts us to go back to the earlier reference to the leopard, it might help us not only with that, you know, the leopard references from before might possibly help us understand the girdle better. And this passage might help us to understand the leopard passage better. So, um, these are, um, uh, these are, uh, the kinds of things that, uh, the, the kinds of games that are really fun to play, uh, with, um, with Dante here. Um, oh, you know, you're right, Stephen. It's the she-wolf who was hungry. That's right. See, I'm misremembering there. Um, 
but um but the leopard um that's a really good point uh wait I'm, i missed it already who is saying that um the, yeah michael um uh michael points to the reference that the the leopard the the explicit reference to the leopard here is to the leopard with the painted hide which does as michael points out point to fraud as well right um that you've got um his hide is 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 paint so on the one hand painted hide just means like it's multicolored right but it does almost suggest a kind of concealment right or a kind of fakery you know like he's like he's like you know the leopard is fronting right with its painted hide and is something different underneath which does recall and yes i agree if we're thinking about the hides of leopard and paying careful attention uh for bible references we should remember that passage which they did like very much in the middle ages michael um uh that uh, uh that reference to the leopard the leopard's inability to change his spots which comes from jeremiah chapter 13 um yeah, exactly. So uh, the leopard can't change his spots. Um, so the, the the concept of the painted hide as related to fraud does that mean that the leopard is truthful? Because like it can't lie, it can't it it can't change its spots. Um, but maybe it could conceal the spots, and the truth is underneath. So like the the underneath truth of the spots of the leopard uh, can't be altered, right? And yet, maybe, maybe it can hide itself. Uh, maybe it can, um, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure how to take painted there. If we take that in terms of fakery as uh, alter, I mean, because by painting something, of course, you are altering the exterior surface. And that difference between the surface appearance and the reality underneath, we're talking about fraud, right? So, I mean, that's very, very relevant, that concept of painting. Um but it might not be. And as Jameson points out, the spots of a leopard uh, are are camouflage as well, which again, about appearing to be something you're not or concealing yourself, right? Um, also seems relevant uh, to, uh, uh, to the whole fraud question. Um, uh, Kid asks, doesn't the leopard have a political reference? Oh yeah, like back in the early, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, certainly seem to. And probably a moral one as well. Um, and maybe other things also. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, good. Okay. So David was looking back and said the role of the leopard in Canto one was to check Dante's progress up the mountain and force him to change his path. Um, okay. Okay, good. So, and it was the and it was and it was the she wolf that was coming up from behind, right? So there was the there was the leopard, there was the lion, and there was and there was the uh, the she wolf, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, Devorah, we're gonna get into Jerry. Uh, Jerry on is. We should probably move on, not because we're done with this, but because again, the, the, this whole. The questions we're already beginning to ask and the things we're beginning to see here will just they're going to continue being relevant. So, yeah, the description of Jerion is going to be full of issues like this as well, for sure. Um, so. Um, so let's um, let's keep going. Let's just let's just keep going. And again, remember that final 
reference to seeing the thoughts and not just the outer act, right? So you've got the external surface that can be seen and going beneath the surface of what is seen. So we also not only, and, 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 and again, notice that. How this pushes in two ways. On the one hand, it pushes towards allegory an allegorical interpretation, which is cool and legit and is a way of getting at truth. It's about truth. Allegory is about truth. It's not about concealment of truth. It's about truth. It's about, it's about how, to, how to uncover, how to uncover truth, right? So on the one hand, this idea of seeing the thing that lies beneath the thing on the surface is about unfolding truth. But of course, again, in the context of we're standing on the edge of the ring of fraud, that's the, a gap between the surface and the reality that's the essence of fraud. That's what fraud is. And so his pointer here, just talking about, again, paraphrasing, I'm trying to figure out what Virgil was thinking when he chucked my belt down the, down the cliff. Um, he is pointing us not only towards like, yo, allegory on inbound folks, right? But also fraud. Uh, warning, danger, right? This is this is the very sin that is um, that we are about to confront. Um, yeah, Serena says, and if the rep if the leopard might represent lust, which of course it might, uh, then keep your clothes on. Then right, then taking off your belt doesn't always necessarily seem like the best plan, does it? Yeah, yeah, that could be a problem, too. All right, anyway, so with all these things in mind, all these questions and no answers in mind, let's keep going. He said to me, Now, there will soon emerge what I await and what your thought has conjured. It soon must be discovered to your sight. Hang on, before we even get to the awesome next line, um, let me do that again. He said to me, now there will soon emerge what I await and what your thought has conjured. It soon must be discovered to your sight. Remember Dante had just been talking about with the penetrating intellect, seeing the thought behind the action, right? Something is going to be discovered to his sight, his outward sight, and his thought has conjured it. So Dante was trying to figure out what was the thought? So he sees the action of throwing the belt down, and he's trying to understand the thought that lay behind that. And now Virgil turns to him and says, your thought has conjured this thing first, and now it's going to be unfolded to your sight. So like the cause and effect is, is the, the, the same two terms now kind of turned on their head. Um, what I await and what your thought has conjured. His thought, Dante has no idea what's coming next. And yet, in some sense, it's his thought that has conjured it. And the conjuration of the thing by Dante's thought would seem explicitly connected with the belt, which has been thrown down. So is the belt representative of Dante's thought, in some sense? The girdle that, you know, was keeping all his clothes together? Um, okay. All right. Hang on. And then, one of my favorite lines in the entire Inferno, Faced with the truth which seems a lie, a man should always close his lips as long as he can. To tell it shames him, even though he's blameless. 
but here I can't be still. And by the lines of this my comedy, reader, I swear, and may my verse find favor for long years, that through the dense and darkened air I saw a figure swimming, rising up, enough to bring amazement to the firmest heart, like one returning from the waves where he went down to loose an anchor snagged upon a reef, or something else hid in the sea, who stretches upward and draws in his feet. Okay, faced with the truth that seems a lie. What is the truth that seems a lie? So now, first of all, note, we're right on to truth again. So again, Sharon, I think you're right. You're onto something there with the belt of truth, right? I mean, again, belt, and, and now we've got the truth. But the truth seems a lie. Um, faced with the truth which seems a lie. What does that mean? On the one hand, it would seem to be a way of saying, you're never going to believe this, right? I'm about to tell you the truth about what I saw, but you're going to think I'm making this up, right? On the, on, the, on the literal level, that seems to be what he's saying, right? However, the truth which seems a lie is also kind of a definition of allegory. That's, that's, that's kind of how allegory work. The truth which seems a lie, right? The thing which you're not really certain about on the surface, but there's truth underneath it, right? Um, the superficial appearance of unbelievability that, that has truth embedded beneath it. This is especially true of what was called the allegory of the poets, right? Uh, the, the, um, this is where, um, so when you're writing allegory, like the normal allegory, not the kind of the allegory, the theologians that Dante seems to be setting out to write, but the normal allegory, like the romance of the rose or something like that. Um, I, you know, so you've got the lover who, like Cupid, the god of love, comes out and he shoots him. Uh, and where does where does Cupid's arrow hit you, by the way? If Cupid shoots you, and by the way, if Cupid shoots you with his arrow in medieval literature, you know about it, right? Cupid is no darling little cherub with a little toy bow, you know, shooting his little golden arrows. Um, he's got like an English longbow, uh, and he's terrifying. Um, and it is uh, extremely painful. Where, where does he shoot you? He shoots you right in the eye, right in the eye. That is, of course, where the darts of, uh, of Cupid, right, right? The dart of Cupid hits you when you're like, whoa, who is that? Right. That is when the, so the, 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 he hits you straight in the eyes. Now the, uh, the arrow of Cupid, when it hits you in the eye, goes straight into your heart, right? The point of the arrow lodges in your heart, but it goes in through your eye. Now, um, first of all, that doesn't make any sense. They knew plenty of anatomy to know how implausible that was, right? Uh, from a physics standpoint, both a physics or a physiology standpoint. Um, and they, uh, you know, and, and then of course, like what, you know, what happens next? Like the, you know, the, the result of getting shot in the eye is not usually, you know, then you swear fealty to the person who shot you in the eye. That's not normally how it works. Um, uh, but again, the point is, 
that kind of this kind of stuff happens in allegory all the time. That kind of thing is like that's the signal by which you as an author communicate the fact that it's allegory, that you're supposed to be interpreting this, that the surface is not real. Right? It's not about the surface. It's about the truth that lies beneath it. Right? This is not a story about an actual archer shooting actual arrows. We're talking about love here. Right? We're talking about sexual love. Um, so orient yourself to that and prepare to actually hear the truth. Right? The actual message that's on the symbolic level and which the literal level is just pointing you to. Okay? So that's normally how allegory works. It is a truth which seems like a lie. Um, okay. So, on the literal level, he's saying, you're never going to believe this. On the, but on, on another level, level, it sounds like Jerion is almost like the, the arrival of Jerion prompts him to say, um, again, it's like a, a second allegory disclaimer, right? Uh, if the first thing about the seeing, you know, penetrating intellects, seeing the thought behind the action was already one pointer, right, to, um, uh, to the fact that allegory is incoming. This seems an even more overt reference to the fact that uh, allegory, I mean, it's almost like Jerion might as well have the word allegory on his forehead, right? Okay. Um, but what should you do? When you're faced with the truth which seems a lie, a man should always close his lips as long as he can. To tell it shames him even though he's blameless. So if you know people aren't going to believe you when you tell them the truth, right? If the truth that you have to tell is too unbelievable, um, is, is, is so strange, it's just, it seems like a lie, um, it's going to shame you. It's going to bring shame to you because nobody's going to believe you, even though it's not your fault, right? You're not actually lying. It's really the truth, but it seems like a lie. But here I can't be still. So here is Dante speaking in the first person. And it, on, at, now remember, Dante speaking in the first person is not strange, right? I mean, he's been speaking the first person all the way through. He's the pilgrim, right? So this is just Dante, the character, right? saying, oh yeah, like I, I should probably shouldn't even try to describe this, but I'm totally gonna anyway, right? Except, no. And by the lines of this my comedy, reader, I swear. What? He's swearing by the, he's swearing the truth of what he says on the, on the lines of his poem. So it's not Dante the character, it's Dante the poet speaking directly to the reader addressing the reader of the poem explicitly, right? Um, okay. Um, yeah, Leanne, there is fourth wall breaking going on here, right? As he explicitly addresses the reader um, by the lines of this, my comedy. And this is important. This is a very significant moment because he's just named his poem for the first time. The Commedia is what this poem is now to be called, and we didn't know that in advance. Remember, um, this is not, um, this is pre printing press. Um, we 
in the post-printing press world have been trained to see a title first, right? Like you, you see a title on the spine of the book before you pull it out. Like that's, that's how you know what the book is, right? Um, that was not a thing in the same way. Um, there, 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 you don't put the title on the end of the scroll or, or whatever it is that you have your man, even if it's in a codex, right? Um, that, that, that was not a general thing. Yes, books do often have titles. Um, the titles are often, uh, you know, pulled from the first line, right? Or something, you know. Um, and so it's a, you will see it's a very common practice for a medieval writer to kind of announce the tuck if they actually want to control what the book is called. Again, this is not something that like a publisher is going to slap on the title page, right? Um, they're, they have to sort of explain it within the work itself, what it's called and sometimes why it should be called that. Um, that doesn't happen here. Um, that doesn't happen here until here. Canto 16, we get the title of the work. He names it and he, in naming it, swears by it. Swears for the truth of what he's going to say. So he is on his own authority, on the, uh, you know, he sort of takes his own authority as a writer. Authority being an important word when you're an author. Um, especially, you know, when you speak Latin and those two words are the same word. Um, uh, and he, and the, like, the, the very poem that he's writing and he pushes it all to the middle of the table, right? He, 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 he's, he's, he's betting this all on Jerrion, on what he's about to describe. I mean, this is a huge windup for this thing that he's about to describe, this truth which seems a lie. And which, of course, oh, wait, hang on a second. The truth which seems a lie, this is the circle of fraud, right? Um, what is fraud? Define fraud. Isn't fraud a lie which seems like truth, <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of what fraud is, right? But, but again, it's a little... Un so on the one hand, you could say it's the opposite. It's the opposite of fraud, right? This is the unfraud. Um, except like any kind of gap between truth and seeming is uncomfortable in a fraud context, right? Uh, and for him to push his own poem, right, to, to, to gamble his own poem, the authority and the truth, uh, like the truth value of his own poem um, on a fraud, you know, a truth and fraud issue around the circle of fraud. At the very least, this is um, that's a pretty high stakes gamble, right? Um, so, uh, okay. Um, so, what's he swearing? By the lines, I swear that through the dense and darkened air, I saw a figure swimming, rising up enough to bring amazement to the firmest heart, like one returning from the wave. So. It's the sight of Jerion, which remember, Virgil's already introduced this. There will soon emerge what I await and what your thought has conjured, and it must soon be discovered to your sight. So the revealing, the uncovering, which again, 
is exactly what allegorical interpretation is, right? You've got truth which is covered over and you're uncovering the truth which lies underneath. That's the process of allegorical inter interpretation. So this idea of discovering something to your sight, even the, what, the, what physically is there, this mist, right? The mist and cloud from which Jerion emerges, right? Is like the, the allegorical mist, the, the mist of symbolism from which the truth emerges when you properly interpret it. Right. Um, uh, and he is and, and that is the thing that he's gambling his poem on, uh, that this this figure which emerges, which is discovered to his sight. Discovered to his sight, but which his thought had conjured thus. So his. He draws attention on the one. First, Virgil says that Jerion, this thing which is emerged, which is physically emerging, which is being discovered to his sight, the thing which is swimming up that he's swearing about, was conjured by his thought. What else is conjured by his thought? Oh yeah, his poem, right? So he is connecting his artistic work with the um, this figure, which Virgil tell, which we have on Virgil's authority, has been conjured by Dante's thought, which is apparently in some way represented by or connected to his belt, which may or may not have something to do with truth, which was first thrown down in order to bring it up. Um, and so, Serena, yes, this idea of unbelting could very well in this context be connected with apocalypse, revealing, unveiling. Apocalypse, of course, literally means revelation, uncovering. Right. Um, so the concept of apocalypse is a is a very important one in the Middle Ages. We talk about apocalypse a lot, not in the modern sense, not always in the modern sense. The apocalypse, the association of apocalypse with the end of the world is semi coincidental. Like it's at the end of the world that things will be revealed. Right. But it's not when we talk about the apocalypse as the end of the world. It's not the actual end that we're interested in. What we're interested in is that we're it's at the end that we're going to finally get all the spoilers, right? That's when that which is hidden is going to be uncovered. Um, so the apocalypse, it's not a coincidental connection between the apocalypse and the end of the world um, exactly, but that's not what the word apocalypse means. An apocalypse is an, unve is an unveiling, a revelation, an uncovering. And so, yeah, um, that a, even a partial, right, physical disrobing uh, comes before that. Again, he's not totally disrobing, right? Just taking off his belt. Um, but again, that 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 action in this kind of um, uh, apocalyptic uncovering context, yeah, that also I agree. That certainly seems um, uh, conspicuous there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Stephen, exactly. Uh, the book of Revelation, what is called Revelation, the Greek word for that, it's that's the apocalypse of St. John. Um, uh, that's literally what the title of that book is of the Bible. Yeah, exactly. And that's that was the emphasis again when, you know, the 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 emphasis in the medieval reading of Revelation of the apocalypse was on the apocalypse part, on the uncovering part. What what shall be uncovered? Uh, uh, not just about like, you know, what you know, a modern Christian might call end times prophecies. That was, they were much less interested. They're not, we're not uninterested in that at all. I mean, especially once the Black Death came around, we became a lot more interested in end times prophecies when the Black Death came around. Um, but, um, uh, but again, the, 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 the main point of, the, of, you know, revelation is, you know, the revelation, 
thing. Um, anyway, okay. Um, now, so let's see. So Serena says, did he make up Jerion? Is he literally conjured by his thought? Sort of. Jerion is, of course, a classical figure. This is another figure from uh, uh, from Greco-Roman mythology. Jerion was one of the labors of Hercules. He had to overcome Jerion. So Jerion is an actual character, um, and so in that sense is real, not invented by Dante. But, and it's a huge but, Jerion is nothing like what Dante describes. Dante's Jerion is totally unprecedented. This is not how Jerion... Jerion, as he's generally described, is a triple-bodied dude. Um, Jerion is like the precursor of the three-headed giant and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? He's not like this sort of dragon-scorpion-manticore thing uh, that Dante's about to describe. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Kit, I agree. Kit is saying, given medieval fashion, taking off a belt is not insignificant. I agree. It's not a total disrobing, but um, it it uh, it would leave you a bit vulnerable <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, but anyway, okay. So, and then let's just notice the epic simile. That is used to describe. So he's swimming. The Jerion, Jerion uh, who's not even named yet, right? But the figure that's coming up. Figure being a very important word in the context of allegory, uh, figura, um, which is a word commonly used of allegory itself. Like it is a figure. Uh, anyway, um, so anyway, so the figure which is emerging. Um, both the literal profile of a thing and the allegorical figure, which is swimming towards him or flying towards him or whatever it is it's actually doing, is like a swimmer, a diver, except not diving, coming back. Like one returning from the waves where he went down to loose an anchor snagged upon a reef or something else hid in the sea. So there's the idea of a ship which has encountered an impediment, right? So you've dropped anchor, but the anchor got stuck on something holding the chain down and unhook the anchor so that you can you can weigh anchor and, and sail, right? Um, and it's as he's emerging, right? As he's coming up uh, towards the surface. That's the, that's the comparison here. Um, okay. Whew. See how much fun this is? Isn't this passage intense? Okay, but hang on. We're still just getting started. Well, this is the end of Canto 16. On to Canto 17. And we start with dialogue again. Like, you know, so Virgil launches us in with, uh, uh, with a portentous statement at the beginning, as has happened on several occasions. Behold the beast who bears the pointed tail, who crosses mountains, shatters weapons, walls. Behold the one whose stench fills all the world. Holy cow. Okay, um, the beast who bears the pointed tail, who crosses mountains, shatters weapons, walls. Behold the one whose stench fills all the world. Um, doesn't this, uh, I, I was just going to say that, Stephen, you're thinking exactly, doesn't this sound like one of Gollum's riddles was exactly what I was about to say. Um, yeah, yeah, um, does sound like that, doesn't it? Um, and again, like, 
those that kind of riddling right is a very allegorical way of thinking right um um it's exactly that kind of game so uh and you know david says should we be thinking about the great beast from revelation well david i can't i don't know how not to um the uh, the beast from the sea especially with the swimming right that just so we you know it's coming up like a swimmer emerging out of the water and then we've got this monstrous figure who emerges as from the water and we get behold the beast who crosses mountains shatters wet you know whose stench fills all the world this now it sounds very much like we are literally in the apocalypse of saint john right in revelation chapter 13 if i'm getting that correctly um uh the uh we've got the the beast from the sea that figure from the book of revelation who is usually called by modern uh people the Antichrist, though that word is never used of that figure in the book of Revelation. Um, the Apocalypse is called the beast from the sea. Um, uh, the word Antichrist is used in the New Testament, but it's not used there about that. Now, that it, you know, that's a connection. I'm not saying it's a crazy, modern, uh, ridiculously wrong idea. That was a connection that went back. I just wanted to point out that it's not... Yeah, I tried to not to call the beast from the sea the Antichrist because that's not in the text. But anyway, um, so should we be thinking about the at? Yeah, I mean, that these first three lines certainly sound apocalyptic in the modern sense, right? I mean, behold the one whose stench fills all the world. Wow. Okay. Who crosses mountains, shatters weapons, walls. Yikes. Okay. Um, so that's quite an introduction. So did my guide begin to speak to me, and then he signaled him to come ashore, the beast, that is, close to the end of those stone passageways, the ones they've been walking down with the river. And he came on, that filthy effigy of fraud, and landed with his head and torso, but did not draw his tail onto the bank. The monster is identified as a filthy effigy of fraud. A filthy effigy of fraud. So it is connected with fraud. This is not just a dude who happens to hang out near the circle of fraud. Um, This is a filthy effigy of fraud. And uh, an effigy, right? An effigy is... Uh, an artificial, it's not real, right? It's a fake mock-up of something. And if you turn it around and look at the back, or if you poke through it, there's nothing inside, right? It's all surface and no substance, right? Which, of course, is exactly what fraud is as well. So that works uh, as a kind of emphasizing, right, um, uh, kind of amplifying concept, right? Uh, filthy effigy of fraud. Um, but wait, does that, is it like a double negative? Does it mean he's not really fraudulent, <laughs> right? He's just an effigy. So he looks like fraud on the outside, but inside he's not actually fraudulent. There's no real fraud to him. Uh, I don't know if it's a double negative in the modern sense or the, you know, the, the, the middle English sense, but um, I don't, um, um, I don't, I don't know. Um, so, uh, and but David, absolutely. Um, 
This is now like the third time, essentially, that Dante has said in like flashing letter. I mean, in his terms, right? In flashing letters, allegory, right? I mean, like he is an allegory of fraud. And just in case we didn't catch that, we now we're now going to get the description, and the, the description, which again is almost explicitly like it's even if you had gone all the way to canto 17 without ever once being even the least bit suspicious that there was allegory going on right if you were the least attentive reader ever to read dante's commedia right um i I, i'm talking about medieval readers here especially this passage should i mean assuming you had ever been introduced to the concept of allegory which as a medieval if you're a medieval reader uh you'd be very likely to have been to have uh, uh, done um you're not going to miss this the face he wore was that of a just man so gracious was his features outer semblance and all his trunk the body of a serpent he had two paws, with hair up to the armpits. His back and chest, as well as both his flanks, had been adorned with twining knots and circlets. No Turks or Tartars ever fashioned fabrics more colorful in background and relief, nor had Arachne ever loomed such webs. His face is the face of a just man, but his body is the body of a serpent. Again, like, I don't know how to do it. If that does not set off every single allegory alarm you have. I don't know what to tell you, right? Like, it's 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 obvious that we are meant to be, you know, that he's not saying, like, yeah, so I discovered a strange species of, uh, you know, which is a strange hybrid of serpent and just person, right? Like, it's, it's, it's not, right? Um, okay. Um, I, and yeah, Devorah, he's painted. He's painted. He's got all these bright colors, right? So you're remembering Devorah the Painted Leopard from before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're coming back to there, too. Um, um, okay, and uh, uh, Stephen, yes, the combination of man and serpent makes you think of Genesis 3, right? The serpent which, uh, 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 which brought the temptation uh, that prompted Eve to, uh, uh, to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yes, yes. Um, and, um, okay. Face of a just man, body of a serpent. With only that, it seems clear. Because we've been given, we've been given the indication in advance. Remember, I, I said that there are similarities between allegorical interpretation, like especially allegory of the poets kind of interpretation and riddle games, right? Um, That same kind of activity, you see a character who's described and again, on the literal level, it doesn't make any sense at all, right? I mean, he's like, no person would ever do this. Like the things described will be physically impossible, but it doesn't matter, right? That's not the point. The point is you're supposed to, you're being given clues in order to interpret what it is, and it's like a riddle. So you'll get this char- this description of this person, like a, a lady and her clothes, and it's like you got to figure out who is that, right? Uh, you know, answer is envy, right? So like, you know, you'll you'll see there'll be a there'll be a woman who's like biting the head off a serpent, and her mouth is like foaming with like green poison dripping down her chin, uh, and her eyes are like on fire, and she is. 
probably really, really poorly dressed, like dressed almost in rags. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, so you, you get all this description, right. Of what she's like. And, 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 and there's an answer, right. The answer is envy. Okay. It's envy. Great. Okay. Right now. Now I see that. But again, what's the point? What's the point? It's not just a parlor game, right? The point of this is through those kinds of descriptions, you can communicate truth about envy, right? This is a good way to convey lessons, right? Rather than just giving a little lecture on like, let's, let's have a heart to heart about envy, Right. And talk about what is the effect of envy on the human spirit and upon your relationships with other people and all these. I mean, you could do that. Right. You could just give a long sermon about envy. But that's boring. And everybody knows that. So instead, you depict an allegorical figure. And of course, we really like uh, actual physical images like this. Uh, these kinds of like icons, allegorical icons uh, were really, really popular through um, uh, through. The Renaissance as well. In fact, you can see the evidence of the, you can see the, 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 the memory, uh, not memory, I mean, because they're still current. Um, you can see these things in Shakespeare a lot. Shakespeare will often describe that kind of tableau, a, a kind of uh, quasi allegorical uh, tableau himself, because that, that kind of uh, that kind of idea was uh, uh, was really popular. People used to dress up, they used to do cosplay, actually. Um, so like you would have like in a um, say the queen was doing a procession through the streets, right? You would have like a, a float, right? You'd have like a wagon um, where you would do a live action cosplay allegorical tableau, you know, where you would, so you like the queen would come riding through and behind her would come like justice uh, or something like that, right? Um, they love this kind of thing. Anyway, it seems like that's the kind of thing that Dante's doing here. And it often happens. I, you know, I said it's like a riddle game, but it's not always a game. Often how you do it, if what you're really interested in is not just like entertainment, um, again, to uh, get people to guess, which is fun, um, but instead teaching, right, moral teaching, you give the name first. You right, you know, like, so again, I, with the envy example I just gave, right, you would say like, then I beheld an image of envy, and then you describe the image, right? So that all of the really cool and often really, you know, kind of graphic and sensational details um, uh, are, you know, then are like they're, they're edifying. Like you've been given the key, you know how to interpret it. And so you can kind of take it to heart and you can understand uh, you're provided the context. Dante's just done that. Filthy effigy of fraud, right? So allegory, but now that's been interpreted. Fraud, right, is on his forehead. And what do we get? Face of a just man, body of a serpent. Okay, effigy of fraud. I see what you did there, right? So it looks like a just man on the surface, but underneath, serpent, right? Okay, okay. And of course, those of you, uh, you know, New Testament fans, if you're thinking about generations of vipers and, uh, uh, you know, making clean the outside of the of the of 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 the cup, uh, but inside is all uncleanness. Yeah, that's that you're 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 on the right track. Um, this is Jesus's uh, condemnation of the Pharisees uh, in the Gospels. But anyway, um, so okay, just man, head, uh, serpent, body, cool, uh, clean sailing. <laughs> Except, wait, we're not done. There's more. Two paws, with hair up to the armpits. That is less transparent. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Um, uh, 
I agree, Jocelyn. Serpents don't usually have hairy armpits. I have no idea. And it's not just the armpits. Hairy up to the armpits. Uh, so he has arms, but the arms aren't bare. The arms are hairy all the way up to the shoulder. So he says to the armpits to tell us, I think not just to invoke the idea of bushy armpit hair, but to uh, tell us that the whole body is not hairy, right? So don't imagine just because he's got hairy arms with the two paws doesn't mean that his whole body is hairy. Um, so it's not like a furry serpent. The serpent body is serpentine, I guess, scaly, except we're not totally, it doesn't have scales. It's got, it's adorned with twining knots and circlets. Super colorful. Super colorful. Um, that's, the Turks and Tartars are famous for their really colorful stuff. Garments and clothes and carpets and things like that. Um, okay, good. Sarah's thinking like animal rather than human in its actions. Good. I agree the pause in place of hands. Uh, we should be thinking about actions, like what it like uh, hands being the actions you perform, right? Your face being like the front that you present to the world, right? Or even like the words that you say, because your mouth is in your face. Um, the body, though, being the substance that lies behind it, but the hands, instead of hands, it doesn't have human hands, it doesn't have the hands of a just man, it has the paws of an animal, right? So they are more, so, so it, Jerry, on the effigy of fraud is more, more bestial than human in its actions, Sarah, I like that. Um, uh, Sarah's thinking even of like ape-like arms, like furry, furry arms, maybe like an ape, which could suggest, um, uh, apes are famous for, um, uh, well, imitating, aping things. That's where the verb aping comes from. Um, they uh, they imitate. Do they actually do this? It doesn't matter. This is We know this in the Middle Ages. That's what they're famous for. Um, so that's possible. Um, uh, Sharon's asking, is he tattooed? I don't know if he's tattooed. I don't know in what way he's adorned with twining knots and circlets. I think the knots, it's not literally not... Like, I don't think anything is tied like he doesn't have hair because the hair just goes up to the armpits. Um, uh, it's his back and chest that are adorned with knots and circlets. So I assume that means the patterns uh, like the, the visual patterns that are on it, like knot and circle patterns. So like intricate, loopy and interwoven not, you know, lines and loops uh, on his person. Right. Um, and um, uh, and very, very brilliantly colorful. Turks and Tartars, Turks and Tartars, Turks and Tartars, though. Uh, what else is what else do Turks and Tartars have in common apart from colorful garments, which they do? What else do they have in common? What else do they are? Yes, they are non-Christian, David. Exactly. Exactly. Um, they're, they're heathens. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, so that's a, a caution, right? Um, uh, which again, like colorful, beautiful, attractive, but dubious, right? From the medieval Catholic perspective. So again, fraud seems to seem to map, seems to map with fraud. Um, nor had Arachne ever loomed such webs. 
Arachne. We're doing lots of uh, uh, lots of Bible quotes this evening. Lay some mythology on me here. Arachne. What's significant about Arachne? Who is Arachne? Who's Arachne? The weaver. Yes, the weaver, who was the greatest weaver ever, who made the most wonderful tapestries ever made. And she challenged Athena, right? She So she challenged Athena to a contest, and Athena was the goddess of weaving. So she challenges Athena to a contest to see who could weave best. And what happens? Yes, many of you got the end point. She's ultimately cursed by Athena and turned into a spider. Why? Why? Why does she get turned into a spider? Because she wins. Yes, or at least she's right. But it's complicated. On the one hand, her weaving really is very good. Like, she's weaving against Athena, the goddess of weaving, and it's not a blowout. At the very least, it is not a blowout, right? Um, uh, so there is potentially some envy there. But yes, it's not Michelle exactly. It's not only that she, uh, and good, uh, Tarlonio has this too, um, it's not only that she does it really well and Athena is like petty and jealous, right? Um, that's not the whole story. The story is what she chooses to depict in the tapestry that she weaves during the weaving contest in which she's challenged the goddess, remember. So the context is she's challenged the goddess and said, I'm better than the goddess. And the, the subject matter that she chooses to weave into her tapestry is essentially the dirty laundry of all the gods. I'm going to go through and I'm going to tell stories of all the bad things the gods have done to mortals that they should be ashamed of, right? So uh, that's a bad look as well, right? And so in wrath at... Uh, in, in, in wrath at her effrontery... Um, effrontery and blasphemy and tinged perhaps with envy at her skill uh, she uh, Athena turns her into a spider okay especially Zeus yes especially Zeus's uh, indiscretions absolutely yeah yeah so there are a couple things generally associated with arachne I mean spiders yes but more than that, with the story of Arachne and Arachne's punishment. One, artists. I mean, she's one of the greatest human artists of all time. Um, Arachne is one of those artist figures in mythology who achieved, you know, near, like the pinnacle or near the pinnacle of human art. Right? And there are several of those, right? Arachne, Orpheus, Daedalus, right, in his own way. Um, so, um, anyway, there's, um, that's, um, that's the, uh, so one associated with Arachne is artists, makers, storytellers, because she's doing all those things. Um, and arrogance, hubris, uh, 
biting off way more than you can chew, um, rising up inappropriately above the mortal station, which is what she does and what she gets punished for. Right. And as a consequence, she is transformed into a beast, uh, into an insect. I know they're not insects, but we don't care in the Middle Ages. They're bugs. She gets transformed into a bug. Um, and um, uh, yeah. So, OK. All right. Now, um, so the, it's the decorations on the chest and back of the monster still unnamed, um, who is, which is being compared to, it's better, right? Nor had Arachne ever loomed such webs. It is, he's more gorgeous than Arachne's products, than Arachne's tapestries. Okay. Okay. Um, um, all right. Fraud. We're being told. So, what? What? How do we do this? Like, how do we unpack this as experienced allegory interpreters? Right. If the basic, just man face serpent body, um, serpents definitely being associated with liars, deceivers, uh, um, uh, tempters, of course, from Genesis three. Um, uh, so the connection between serpents and fraud is established, long established, right? Uh, uh, Genesis 3 being long ago. Um, so we have the basic framework, but we continue to get details. And every detail that we get tells us more, right? Tells us more about fraud. So the, the snake, that the snaky part that lies... But this is interesting, isn't it? If fraud is a beautiful surface that is ugly underneath... This monster is more complicated than that. He has the face of a just man, and he's a serpent behind, right? Which maps onto fraud. But it's the serpent behind that's gorgeous, in fact, right? Like, if the serpent is the lie, um, if the serpent is the lie, the lie itself is also gorgeous. So the lie isn't only the face of the just man, right? Um, even the, like, the, the truth, which is the fact that it's a lie, um, is also itself gorgeous. Okay. But wait, there's more. Um, well, we'll get the more later on, because we now interrupt this scene. Right, he's come ashore, and Devora, yeah, you made the point uh, before about how it's interesting that, like, now the edge of the cliff is now the shore. Um, he is continuing to perpetuate that beast from the sea action, right? Uh, that, uh, like, I mean, he's he he continues to sustain the metaphor that the edge of that cliff is the shore of a body of water, right, and that. The monster is not flying, but swimming up from the circle of fraud. But all the action is paused for Dante to go backwards and finish the Violent Against God tour. Because remember, we only saw two groups. There were the groups 
that were on their backs. There were the groups that were walking or running. And there were the groups that were sitting. And we never saw the sitters, right? Besides, we were promised usury and we never got it, right? So while... Um, uh, um, <laughs> you're right. Uh, sorry, I didn't do the... Um, I knew I'd never get through this passage if I did every single line, David, but you're right. I skipped the simile of the beaver stalking its prey, uh, which I agree with you, David, is singularly odd. Um, but um, yeah, that's describing the motion with which his tail is continuing to uh, flap around, right? As his paws are on the cliff, or excuse me, the shore, uh, and his tail is continuing to flap around, and it's flapping like a beaver uh, slapping his tail on the water to catch its prey. Roll with it. Roll with the natural philosophy. Um, again, it doesn't matter what real beavers do. We don't care. Um, what we care about is the allegorical tradition surrounding beavers. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. Uh, but we're going to pause. We're going to, I'm, I was really tempted. I've been doing, you know, the passages in order, you know, as we've been kind of going through the whole passage, the, the whole poem. This is one of the places where I was really tempted to rearrange them in order to like, you know, let's get the usury stuff out of the way first and then let's do the whole Jerian thing. Um, but I decided like, no, we can't do that because it's part of the singular strangeness of this entire scene that we get this interlude in the middle that usury is presented as an interlude in the middle of the Jerian incident. Um, Virgil's going to have some private words with Jerian. Meanwhile, Dante, you toddle off on your own and go see the usurers, right? <coughs> All right. So I went on alone, and even farther along the seventh circle's outer margin, to where the melancholy people sat. Despondency was bursting from their eyes. This side, then that. Their hands kept fending off at times the flames, at times the burning soil. Because remember, they had to sit on the soil, which is itself burning too. Uh, so they're not only fending off the, um, the flames, which are still falling there, uh, but the burning soil. Okay. Uh, not otherwise do dogs in summer now with muzzle, now with paw, when they are bitten by fleas or gnats or by the sharp gadfly. When I had set my eyes upon the faces of some on whom that painful fire falls, I recognized no one. But I did notice that from the neck of each a purse was hung that had a special color and an emblem, and their eyes seemed to feast upon these pouches. So that they have these crests, right, on the pouches that are hanging around, there's a purse hanging around their neck with a family crest, basically. And these were houses, there's, you know, so there's political significance here of the houses, you know, the usurious houses uh, that are being pointed to here. Um, and um, uh, and their own eyes are feasting on their pouches. So they're, they're, they, while they're beating off the flames like, you know, dogs trying to scratch multiple flea bites at once, uh, their uh, their eyes are feasting upon the family crests and the, the the purses that hang around their necks. They're still fixated on the money while they're being tormented from both directions by the flames. Okay, and he doesn't recognize anybody. Um, 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, David, I gotta, I'm gonna. I agree with you. I'm gonna come back to that in a second. Well, no, it's fine. We'll do it now. Um, David was saying that for the last several cantos, we've been seeing gradual transitions uh, between the circles, um, uh, like the wrathful before the circle of the violent. Like you know, the the, the gradual transition, not the sharp demarcation between, uh, like the you know the avaricious right the the prodigal and the and the and, and the and the miserly um and the swamp of um, of of wrath um usury which is akin to fraud continues the pattern so yes i i do think it's not a coincidence uh that um we now interrupt this transition to fraud right this introduction having been introduced to the concept of fraud with this really remarkable allegorical figure to which all this attention is drawn, um, we now pause to go think about the usurers again. So the way in which the usury seems to be, uh, and, and there's also, this would seem to be also represented by their physical location, right? They are, they are sitting on the burning sand of the circle of violence, um, specifically in the zone of the violent against God, but they are sitting right next to and looking down over the circle of fraud, right? So that certainly, um, uh, that certainly does, uh, not seem coincidental, right? Uh, I do think that he's kind of showing them as a sort of, uh, as, as a sort of transition. Marilyn, the fact that these crests seem to be, assuming that those crests belong to the people who are wearing them, um, would seem to suggest that it is their own purse, like they're fixated on their purses, uh, on their own, you know, they're fixated on their money, um, which would certainly seem to fit into the pattern of the way in which the punishments seem to be the perpetuation of the sin, like that, you know, just the, them continuing the sin, uh, you know, in some kind of graphically external way. Um, uh, that their own torment, even their inability to escape the burning in both direction, while their eyes remain fixed uh, on uh, on on the um, on the money. There's a remember Capanius, right, with his blasphemous speech and his defiance. Um, his eyes are fixed on God, right. He's staring straight up into the heavens. Um, and that too is a continuation. We talked about obviously the continuation of his defiance, which obviously uh, carries on unchecked. Um, but he is staring straight up at God the whole time, right? Um, and they're staring down at their um, at their purses and their own family emblems as well, um, which also suggests a, it's this. It's not just a label. It is a label, right? But it's not just a label. Um, the connection. Right, the, the this sort of essential link between the purse and the crest, and the fixation on the crest and on the purse sort of suggest a link there, uh, even an identity between those two things. Um, that it's not just that it's not just an identifying marker of the family who happened to have been usurers, right? But that this family, it's like usury is. Like the essence of this family's position, this you know that that there's a, a much closer link that he seems to be suggesting there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. 
No, I didn't do more. So I, I was I just wanted to, I couldn't remember if I did one or two passages on the users. I know I didn't want to spend much time on them, but I so I did the one. So let's not move on without thinking at least a little bit about um, usury in completing our tour. This is our last and like as it were after the fact and uh, half-hearted completion of our tour of the Violent Against God. Uh, we had the Sodomites none of whom, in, in, in discussing none of whom did we seem very interested in sexual acts. Um, uh, and we had the blasphemers, who were at least blaspheming. Um, and, uh, and now we have the usurers. So the three ways, the three different ways in which people are violent against God, one is in open rejection and defiance of God. Uh, the second is is the sodomites, which, you know, remember we were looking at the primarily what he is focused on, not on sex, uh, but on the use of wealth and on teaching, right? Um, uh, and we talked about in both cases what seemed to be the emphasis on the desert, can, the burning desert, right, and the not bearing fruit. Um, and now usury, which also, of course, doesn't bear fruit. And we, there's a close link between the wheeling dudes right at the end of the violent, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the zone of the, of the sodomites, um, the ones who were, whose emphasis is on money, right? Um, what's the distinction between those who are, um, you know, use their money unfruitfully and those who are usurers, right? And there is a difference. Um, the one seems to be in the improper usage, use of money. Um, uh, and then these are the improper gain of money, right? The, the, uh, the, the inappropriate, uh, uh, gain of money. Um, usury was understood. I mean, lending at interest is explicitly forbidden in Old and New Testament. So it's, um, it's understood to be a bad thing to do. Like this is a violation, uh, and and so it is characterized by Dante here as a violation of the divine order, a fundamental violation of the divine order. That is what all of the violent against God have in common. That is the common thread of all of these. Why they are all characterized as violence against God, um, and if usury seems like perhaps the strangest one of all of these, um, that it should be. Remember, that was also the one we've already had an explanation. Um, uh, we, we've had an explanation of all that stuff um, by, um, uh, by Virgil, right? When, they, when he was asking, Dante was asking questions as they were about to descend into the seventh circle. Remember, he asked, it was like, usury? What's up with usury? And Virgil gave us an explanation way in advance, right, about how, you know, there are ways which, like, you're supposed to, uh, you know, like, interact with God's world in order to, in order to uh, make your living. Um, uh, whether it's, like, directly, you know, like, growing things like a farmer does, or whether it's even, you know, like, making things, being a craftsman, that's, that's legit, right? Um, to, like, produce something, to interact with the world in a fruitful way. But usury, just money, using money to, to make money, um, is 
is barren, is is parallel to the kind of barrenness that we were talking about uh, last time um, with the circle of the sodomites. Um, so anyway, that's uh, um, seems to be the connection. Not only the, the usurers are sort of set aside. We don't get much of them. He doesn't recognize them. It only lasts for a little short time. And then he's back to Virgil. So, okay. Um, I found my guide, who had already climbed upon the back of that brute animal. And he... Brute animal. Which is redundant. Okay. Um... He had already climbed upon the back of that brute animal, and he told me, Be strong and daring now, for our descent is by this kind of stairs. You mount in front. I want to be between so that the tail can't do you any harm. As one who feels the Quartran fever near and shivers, with his nails already blue, the sight of shade enough to make him shudder, so I became when I had heard these words. But then I felt the threat of shame, which makes a servant in his kind lord's presence brave. I settled down on those enormous shoulders. I wished to say, and yet my voice did not come as I thought, see that you hold me tight. But he who, other times, in other dangers, sustained me, just as soon as I had mounted, clasped me within his arms and propped me up, and said, now, Gerion, move on. Take care to keep your circles wide, your landing slow. Remember the new weight you're carrying. Okay. Um, we get the name. Now, Jerrion, move on, says Virgil. Right? So, Virgil's instructions finally inform us of the name of the creature, of the brute beast. Our descent is by this kind of stairs. Okay. Um, after all that aquatic imagery, they're not diving now below the surface. Now they're descending the stairs. He's a set of stairs that they descend on. Um, and of course you can see uh, this the image behind me here seems to get it wrong, don't you think? That's got to be Dante there and Virgil. Virgil's supposed to be behind him. Why is Dante in the back? Doesn't make any sense. I didn't notice that before. Um, but it's okay. They get the tail wrong, too, because the tail is very serpentine. Why does he have back legs? I don't remember back legs. We're told he's got arms and paws. Uh, maybe he's got four of them, but it didn't suggest he had four of them. Um, but anyway, we do have a kind of a serpentine tail, uh, but it doesn't end in a stinger, which it's supposed to end in a stinger, like a scorpion. Um, and uh, Leanne and Jocelyn both, I, did, I didn't remember a reference to wings. Did we get a reference to wings? At least yet? I, I don't remember a reference to wings. Um, again, remember, he didn't look like a flyer. He looked like a swimmer. Right? Who draws up his legs, right? Maybe that's why we think he's got hind legs, or maybe that's just, you know, the four legs. I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, it is like a medieval Balrog controversy. Yeah, does Jerion have wings? That's a much more open question than the Balrog question, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, Jameson, exactly. There's not even a shadow that reached out like wings. Exactly. Okay, but anyway, all right. Okay. Brute animal. Be strong and daring now, for our descent is by this kind of stairs. Dante is being enjoined to be bold and daring. Strong and daring. Remember the daring. That's important. Okay. He's going to, Virgil is going to protect Dante from the tail of Gerion. So the serpent's tail, the fraud part, the lying part, the fancy part, the beautiful part, the Turk and Tartar part, the Arachne part, um, might wound Dante. So Dante could be injured by the snaky tail, which would seem to be an uncomfortable indictment if that were to happen, but Virgil's going to protect him. Virgil's going to protect him. Um, yeah, Bruce, you're absolutely right. Uh, good one. Good, good catch there. Um, we're about to cross an important boundary and your guide is saying be strong and courageous. You should be thinking of Bible quiz. Got it. Yes. Joshua. You should be thinking about Joshua who gave the famous be strong and courageous speech right before the Israelites crossed over the River Jordan in order to enter into and occupy the Promised Land. Um, but David Good, David is also thinking the, uh, the pilgrim who has lost his truth belt is now in danger of being poisoned by falsehood, right? Corrupted by falsehood. That would seem dangerous, right? But fortunately, he's got Virgil to protect him um, and to stand in the midst between him and the tail, which Bruce, of course, I can't help but think is... Remember, how do they cross the River Jordan? How does Joshua get, 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 get over there? The Ark of the Covenant goes and they, they bear the Ark of the Covenant out into the middle of the stream and the River Jordan stops, right, and backs up. It piles up behind the... And they cross over on dry land, right? Um, so that, um, that interposing, right, of a divine protection in order to enable them to cross over, it's not an exact parallel, but again, I, 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 I agree. It seems relevant, again. Okay. But we're standing between that and the tail. Now, but Bruce, you're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right that um, the Joshua parallel, it is the crossing of an important frontier, the crossing of an important boundary. Um, but Bruce points out that the, the Joshua parallel would make the promised land into the circle of fraud. Yeah, that's uncomfortable at the least. Um, now, again, 
we can allegorize things in various ways. It can be, uh, you know, and as I've said before, remember, it's not at all uncommon to like take a passage and in one sense, one way on one level of allegorizing it, right? A particular figure might represent God. And in another version, it might represent the devil. That, that, that could happen. That, that's, 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 that's known. That kind of thing is known. Like just, you know, when you're doing a different, when you're allegorizing it on a different level. So that kind of, you know, like circle of fraud, promised land, you know, it can work. It can work allegorically. But I agree with you. It's got to make you sit up and take notice a little bit anyway, right? Especially when you think, like, it's, it's the promised home, right? It's like the destined home of the Israelites. They're crossing over into the promised land. Um, is the circle of fraud Dante's promised home? Uh, is and again like this is not the first time that his own you know his own thought conjures the effigy of fraud right I mean the 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 the, the connection between Dante and fraud you know the truth which seems a lie or the lie which seems like truth we've you know we've had that um, we've had that before um, um, and Bruce you are right that of course he is on his way to the promised land. Uh, right. I mean, that is it's not, fraud is the destination. It's it's just it's just sort of the next stage. Um, so, yeah, we could we could kind of do that with it, too. But again, I can't help but think of it now. Serena, you make a really good point about um, with the with the tail. Right. The the sting of the tail, if it were to wound Dante, if he were to get stung, um, you could see this not as being a, an indictment of Dante himself, but an, a, a peril to his own wounding. Right. Because as Serena pointed out, of course, he's obviously the victim of fraud in Florence. Right. He's been exiled for a crime he obviously didn't commit. So he is the victim of fraud and malice. Um, uh, and so so yeah, you could see that as once again, fraud preparing to strike against him. But this time he's going to be protected uh, by Virgil. Um, yeah, I think that that works, too. But I have other reasons to think that that's not certainly the exclusive way to read that, um, that Dante himself is um, uh, associated in, or at least concerned about fraud in some sense. Um, uh, we'll end with this. I do not think that there was greater fear. So he's again characterizing his own fear here, he, which which he previously was connecting with illness, trembling, and fever. I do not think that there was greater fear in Phaeton when he let his reins go free, for which the sky, as one still sees, was scorched, nor in poor Icarus when he could feel his sides unwinged because the wax was melting, his father shouting to him, That way's wrong! Then was in me, when on all sides I saw that I was in the air, and everything had faded from my sight, except the beast. Oh, and remember the beast, who's kind of like the beast from the sea in Revelation? Whose stench fills all the world? That's all he can see? Slowly, slowly, swimming, he moves on. He wheels and he descends, but I feel only the wind upon my face and the wind rising. He can see nothing. All he can feel is the wind upon his... He feels only the wind upon my face and the wind rising. 
Now these comparisons. I was really afraid. Let me tell you how afraid I was. I was as afraid as Theaton and Icarus. That's how scared I was. Pretty scared. Who's Phaeton? Two really prominent mythological references here. Who's Phaeton? Apollo's son. Yes, the mortal son of the god Apollo. God of the sun. Um, what's Phaeton's claim to fate? Uh, under what circumstances was Phaeton afraid? What, what scene is being invoked by explicitly in this comparison? Yeah, no, he doesn't steal it. He doesn't steal the chariot. He drives the chariot of the sun. Um, the story is that uh, Phaeton, the mortal son of Apollo, meets... He's getting, like, picked on by the other kids at school, right? Because, like, he doesn't have a dad. And he's like, my god, my dad is the god of the sun. And they're like, yeah, whatevs. And so he's like, no, totally. He's the god of the sun. And they're like, prove it. And he's like, fine. So he goes to Apollo and says... Dad, it, you're my you're my dad, right? And he's like, of course I'm your dad. And he's like, if I'm your dad, if you're my dad, then promise that you'll give me whatever I ask for, which you never do, but they always do, right? So he's like, sure, yeah, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And um, he says, okay, I want to drive the chariot of the sun one day. Let let me drive the car. <laughs> Is what he asks for, uh, and. Apollo is like, well, crap, right? I have to do it because I promised that I would give him whatever he asked for. But I know for a fact he's going to die, right? Because no mortal possibly can control um, the... Um, uh, possibly can control the chariot of the sun. Um, so he drives the chariot of the sun and is terrified because he can't control the horses of the sun and they go careening off the path and the constellations get all miffed and scorched and the sky is burned and all it almost destroys the world until finally in order to prevent the world from being you know scorched and you know burned to a crisp uh jove smashes the chariot of the sun and phaeton with him to a lightning bolt and he comes falling in flaming death out of the sky, and thus passes Phaeton. That's how afraid Dante was. He was as afraid as Phaeton while he, Phaeton was driving the chariot of the sun. And he was as afraid as Icarus. When was Icarus afraid? Who was Icarus and when did he get scared? He got scared when he was unwinged. Right? Who's Icarus? The one who, fl who flew too close to the sun. Yeah, yeah. Icarus is the son of Daedalus. Daedalus, the great inventor, the great artist, the great maker. Um... We might not associate artist and inventor like as being the same in the same category of thing, right? They absolutely did in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, invention 
is the faculty of the artist, first and foremost. Artists, of course, do not create. They are not creative. Only God can create. Artists invent. It's what they do. You are using your invention when you are making up a story or writing a poem or painting a picture or whatever it is that you're doing, right? So someone who is a great inventor of mechanical things like Daedalus uh, is also, therefore, an extremely um, uh, important, is, 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 is an artist figure. Okay, all right, fine. Daedalus, one of the greatest artists and inventors that there was, he is the one who invented the labyrinth and then Minos. Yes, that Minos with the tail, except he didn't have a tail at the time. Locks him up in a tower, right? Um, and with his son, Icarus. But Daedalus is Daedalus, right? So he invents his way out of the problem. And so he invents wings, right? These fake wings um, where the feathers are held onto the wooden frame with wax. Um, and he gives a pair of wings to his son and a pair of wings to himself, and they fly out of the tower, and they've got to fly out of the tower and across the sea to land um, so that they can safely escape from their captivity. Um, and he tells his son before they leave the tower, okay, don't fly too high. Don't fly too low. And don't fly too high, because if you fly too low, then the sea spray will will kick up on you, and it'll weigh you down, and you'll drown. And if you go too high, the sun will be too hot, and it'll melt the wax, and that'll be just as bad, and then you'll die too. So fly the middle path across the sea. Um, and this, of course, this is easy to allegorize morally, right? The golden mean between two extremes. you got to stick to the golden mean, and then you're fine, right? That one's easy to allegorize. So anyway, okay. So there's Icarus. Don't fly too high. But he does. Of course he does, right? There's Icarus, you know, like being a kid, uh, well, teenager, anyway, and he's, uh, you know, he's flying and he's like, this is awesome. Look how high I can go. And he flies too high and then his feathers fall off and he plummets down to his death. Um, his sides unwinged because the wax was melting, his father shouting to him, that way's wrong. Um, that's how scared he was. As scared as Phaeton, as scared as Icarus. Very ominous and conspicuous comparisons, right? On the one hand, his fear, you can see why he's thinking of those two frightened individuals, because like them, he is flying, right? He's flying on the back of a creature, uh, and so he is scared while flying, and so he makes allusions to two folks who were also scared while flying, right? So, okay, that's, that's, that, that tracks, right? That works. Um, and he's with a pseudo father figure. Good, Jameson. Right. Excellent. Yes. That way's wrong, right? Uh, both of them are also sons, right? Um, they're not just scared flying persons. They're scared flying sons, right? Good. Yes. All right. Um, both of them also killed, in a sense, directly or indirectly by the sun, right? Uh, so both of them, the, 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 the heat of the sun associated with, uh, with, uh, with both of them. Okay, more, more. What else? What else do they have in common? Morally speaking, what else do they have in common? Um, if we 
think of the moral significance of these two figures. What else? What else do they have in common? What else have they done? It's not just about their fear. It's a, they're both about to die, right? Um, yes, good. Pride. Self-delusion. Hubris. Yeah. Oh, like Arachne, right? Then whose tapestries the knots and decorations on the back of Jerion are more gorgeous, right? Um, Arachne, Phaeton, Icarus, all figures who are often taken as... When, what happens when you get above yourself, right? When you try to fly too high, when you attempt to... Arachne challenged the gods directly. Phaeton steps, tries to step into a divine role. It, he can't. He's not qualified. No human was... That task was never meant to be done by a human. A human cannot do that. Only a god can do that. So does a human who is putting himself into a divine role and crashing and burning, burning and then crashing as a result, right? Uh, and Icarus, who also flies above the mortal, uh, flies higher than mortals are supposed to fly, right? Rash action, good. That is also, that is also connected here. Um, ah, Sarah, excellent. Sarah says, they are also mortals where mortals don't belong. Kind of like, oh, I don't know, a living person in hell. Exactly, Sarah. Yes, yes. These are really conspicuous comparisons. Really conspicuous comparisons. Especially since at least two out of the three, Icarus, through Daedalus, his father, uh, the human art of Daedalus, which enables Icarus to fly, um, above where humans are supposed to go, right? To fly like humans are not meant to be able to fly. Um, the flight of Daedalus is one of the paramount achievements of human art, right? Um, but there are limits still to that kind of thing. You can't go too high or else. Um, and Arachne, of course. And remember the context of the whole thing, right? He is flying on Jerion, so Jerion is li in the in these is like the chariot of the sun, that divine vehicle which humans are not supposed to be driving, right? Um, the it's like the wings of from Daedalus, right? That paramount um, uh, achievement of human art. It's decorated like Arachne's. Uh, tapestries, also one of the paramount achievements of human art. Jerian, associated with all of these things. Oh, and by the way, remember what else Jerian was associated with? Dante's thought. Dante's commedia, named when Dante is swearing the truth of what he is about to tell, right? When he lays this incredible emphasis on the importance and the significance in more than one sense, the significance of the figure that is emerging from the mist, that is swimming upward or flying upward or whatever it is it's doing upward, right? Um, 
He swears by his comedy, by his poem, that by his allegorical poem, that this allegorical figure that he's describing is true. That effigy of fraud. It's a true effigy of fraud, whatever that means. And a true allegorical figure. Uh, and, but it's also like the vehicle of the gods, like the paramount human art, which leads to human destruction. And Dante is like Phaeton. Dante is like Icarus. As he is riding the back of Gerion, this allegorical figure invoked in the name, uh, you know, sworn, the, the truth of whom is sworn by his Commedia itself, he is like Phaeton. He is like Icarus. He is like the mortal who has gone beyond where mortals are allowed to go. Sarah, exactly like being a living person who is taken to places where human living people are not allowed to go, not supposed to go. He is being taken above mortal status, right? Above mortal range. And he is in danger. He is afraid like those mortals were afraid. Not afraid lest he come into danger, but afraid like they were afraid when they were dying, when it was too late for both of them. And his he is not flying upward. He's flying downward, right? He is descending on the back of Gerion, slowly, slowly, swimming again down into the sea, the allegorical sea, um, the sea of fraud, the sea like the sea from which the beast emerged. Um, yeah, yeah. Serena says, hashtag humble brag. Yeah, definitely. Definitely in a sense. Um, yes. Um, at the same time saying... I am in danger. It's a, it's, it is a humble gesture, right? Like acknowledging this thing that I'm doing in writing this poem. I'm in over my head. I'm in way over my head. I am like Phaeton. I am like Icarus. I am like even Arachne, potentially, right? Um, and I acknowledge that. As my pilgrim self descends into fraud, right? Fraud connected with his commedia because he was swearing, you know, on it that it was true, right? Um, putting his own poem at stake if what he said isn't true. Um, it is a humble gesture, an acknowledgement of the peril, at the very least, the peril into which he has put himself. But of course, it's also making some pretty amazing claims, right? My poem is kind of like Arachne's weaving, right? Um, kind of like Daedalus's wings. Kind of like the chariot of the gods, right? Kind of like the chariot of the sun. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And of course, yet Bruce, exactly, as you see, this maps onto in so many ways, right? Not only is he... is the Dante Pilgrim doing this, right? Going where mortals are not meant to go. But again, even as you're reminding us poetically, he is doing, like, you're not supposed to be able to write Allegory of the Theologians. That's not how it works, right? No one has ever written a poem 
like this has ever done with meter what he's doing in Terzarima, right? I mean, it's, 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 yes. Um, he is explicitly, consciously setting out to break the boundaries of human art, and he knows it. And he's aware of what that implies. He's aware of the kind of company that that puts him in, in doing that. Um, but doesn't mean he's not doing it. And it's in that context, right? In the same, like, it, it, at, in the beginning of the incident, which ends with him comparing himself to Phaeton and Icarus, that he names the poem, right? Uh, and it's not the introduction, it's the middle. Well, not the middle of uh, the entire poem, right? Which is all three cantica. Um, the middle of the whole poem is, of course, in purgatory. But, um, uh, but you know, it's uh, in the middle, near the very middle uh, of Inferno here. Um, so, um, kind of mind-blowing, this whole passage. You can see why this is one of my favorite passages. Like, the Jerry and stuff just blows my mind every time uh, we come here. And there's so much more. Like, we could talk about this for weeks. Um, we shouldn't. We'll get on to actual fraud uh, and the circle of the fraudulent. Uh, the first being excoriated, the circle of the fraudulent um, is A, named, which is interesting, and B, subdivided into ten different sections, so uh, that's going to be fun. Um, we will get a lot of data to try to figure out the essence of fraud. Um, but, um, but I'm going to let you go, because it's late. Thank you uh, for joining me on this fascinate for this discussion of this fascinating canto and a half, uh, and I look forward to next week as we uh, uh, really get down into uh, the circle of fraud. So thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>